the underdog the podcast that follows the tales of compassion and bravery of animal rights activists all over the world my name is hannah grant and i'm the administrative assistant and social outreach director at the animal law firm i will be taking over as a guest host for our lead attorney and founder christina bergson in order to create more content for our lovely viewers as i interviewed these amazing people i was truly inspired by the common theme of hope that they give to underdogs everywhere They taught me that sometimes the greatest power an underdog possesses is never giving up hope. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today, as our guest, we have Jessica Miller, Education and Outreach Coordinator with the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program, located in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for being our guest today, Jessica. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, well, we can just dive right in then. Can you tell us a little bit about Rocky Mountain Raptor Program and your role there? Yeah, so the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program, as you said, is in Fort Collins, Colorado, and we've been part of this organ- this community for more than 35 years. Uh, we work really with three branches to our mission. We're primarily a rescue and rehabilitation facility for injured raptors or birds of prey, so things like eagles, owls, hawks, falcons, vultures. When they get injured or hurt or somehow in need of assistance, they can be brought to our hospital for care and for treatment with the goal of getting them back out into the wilds. We also do a lot of education in our community uh, based on around raptors, their habitats, the challenges that they face in the wild, and what all of us as community citizens can do to help protect them while providing spaces for both us and that wildlife to thrive. We also do that with a team of permanently disabled, non-releasable educational ambassadors. These are birds that came to our hospital with injuries that didn't heal up well enough to allow them to survive in the wild on their own. And so they stay with us for the remainder of their lives as a teaching tool for people to get to see raptors up close. And then the third prong of our mission is to contribute to scientific research and knowledge about raptors and the challenges that they face. A large part of that that we do is data collection then to make available to other researchers doing a wide variety of projects. Okay, very cool. What are some of the challenges that these birds face in the wild? You know, we see a wide variety of things, but the number one reason why raptors come to our hospital is that they get hit by cars. And it's really far and away the biggest injury roadsides can attract a lot of prey. So things like garbage on roadsides, uh, food scraps thrown out windows, or perhaps uh, blown around by the wind from unsecured trash cans end up on roadsides. And a lot of that smells or is food. And so it attracts a prey animal like a squirrel or a rabbit or a mouse or something like that, that then comes over to heat to eat. And the raptors will then come down to hunt that animal. Plus, with the roadsides often being mowed down, then that also makes it easier for the raptor to see and hunt along the roads because that prey doesn't have the cover from the grass or whatever vegetation might be there. And so they may get directly hit by perhaps flying right across the road while they're doing their hunting or indirectly injured by eating on the roadside once they've made that kill. And then large vehicles, we get a lot of birds from along interstates or major roads, large vehicles will pick them up and tumble them over and injure them that way. So that really is the biggest thing. Uh, Our number two injury is window strikes. 
birds flying into large glass windows because they can't see the glass. They actually see the reflection of the sky behind them, think there's more sky just straight ahead and crash right on into those windows. But we do see a lot of other things. Uh, we do see weather-related injuries, spring storms knocking nests with babies out of trees, uh, freezing rain, freezing storms can bring birds to the ground and uh, prevent them from getting lifted up to be able to hunt. We see things like territorial disputes, sometimes raptors being attacked by free-roaming cats or dogs. We do see a lot of diseases as well. And that's something that we're dealing with right now in particular is an outbreak of high pathogenic avian influenza, mm -hmm. which has been active for more than uh, just about a year actually. And this is just absolutely deadly to raptors carried by wild waterfowl and present in the environment. And um, it's been pretty devastating to raptors, to waterfowl. It's starting to migrate across into other species. A couple of grizzly bears were just recently discovered with it. But we've had some pretty hard losses on our rehabilitation team from it. Uh, about 98%. 99% of the birds that come to us with this virus will die from it. We've had a couple that have recently recovered, not yet ready to be released and still kind of guarded on their recovery, but they haven't yet died from it. So that's at least a few possible successes and our, our rehabilitation team is really excited to at least have some opportunity to recover these birds. There's a lot of things, some of them are naturally occurring, but the ones that are the most impactful are unfortunately human caused. Mm -hmm, absolutely. How many birds do you currently have on site? We have about 35 patients in-house right now, and it's winter, so it's our quiet season, not as much activity as normal. At our peak busy season, which will be late August, early September, we'll have somewhere around 65 to 70 patients in-house. And then we have 21 permanently disabled ambassadors that live with us uh, year round. What kinds of injuries make a raptor a permanent resident? You know, it varies and it's not so much the type of injury that is a selective criteria. It's more about how that injury didn't heal up. And as you can imagine, kind of the breakdown of the types of injuries that our ambassadors have really do reflect the types of injuries that come into our hospital. The most common reason is that these birds were at one point hit by a car and that left some of them with broken uh, wings that didn't heal up with the full range of motion or their full ability to fly. Some of our ambassadors suffered head trauma that left them with cognitive deficits or perhaps visual deficits. Uh, we have a few other small things. We have a little screech owl that got tangled up in some light garden netting over somebody's vegetable garden or flower garden and did uh, get wrapped around her leg and her foot, causing some really tight constriction injuries and some partial amputation of her toes due to that, losing the talons, which are her hunting weapons uh, in the process. And so she can't successfully hunt. But most of our ambassadors were hit by vehicles or some kind of fracture, mostly to a wing that left them unable to fly well enough. Mm -hmm. What does your rehabilitation program look like for, for the animals that you can get back out in the wild? 
Well, they come to us from our emergency rescue line. We are one of the few organizations in Colorado that runs an emergency rescue phone so that when people just out and about find a raptor that they think might need help, they can call us and we can respond. A uh, great thing about phones, of course, is people can send us pictures so we know for sure that it's a raptor. Um, sometimes that's hard to determine in the field. And then we have a rescue team. Sometimes that team will go out and collect the individual and bring it back. Sometimes we ask the reporting party if they're able to bring the bird to us because we do have a limited resource on that rescue team. And sometimes we work with other organizations like Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife or some local vet offices to transport the birds to our hospital. And then on arrival, they get an examination to try to figure out what's the injury, uh, what course of treatment might be needed. They get some fluids and some general pain medications and then are typically put into our critical care unit, sometimes in an oxygen enclosure if they might need it. And they'll spend anywhere from one day to it could be weeks in that smaller space where it's a, a small enclosure forcing the bird to rest and really just put their energies into trying to heal instead of putting a lot of movement. And they'll stay in there as long as they need until they're stabilized, at which point they move to an outdoor enclosure. They live their lives outdoors, so we want to have them outdoors where they're, they're suited and uh, used to being. And those spaces, then we have three different outdoor enclosure sizes that gradually get larger and larger as that particular individual recovers and starts to be able to move around and do some self-rehabilitation and some self-therapy. And then uh, we'll do some testing before they get released. Uh, most of our birds go through a flight testing, so we evaluate their flight abilities, their landing, their perching, maneuvering, banking, those basic flight skills. And then we also test their hunting abilities through what we call a mouse school or rat school, depending on the size of the individual. Those smaller species like American kestrels or screech owls might get mice and then red-tailed hawks or great horned owls will get rats. And in the case of eagles, bald eagles, golden eagles will use rabbits. And we put these live animals in the enclosure with the birds for a number of days, anywhere from five to 10 days. And they have to prove that they're capable of catching and successfully killing their own prey. At which point that bird is released back into the wild. And by regulations, we do have to return those birds to within 10 miles of where they were originally found, assuming that that is most likely their native territory. And we don't want to accidentally introduce them into another individual's territory, thereby putting them right back at risk. So sometimes we do have to travel those birds back to where they came from, because we serve all of northeastern Colorado for rescue. So all the way from Longmont north to the Wyoming border, and actually up into Wyoming as far north as perhaps Casper, and then all the way from the Front Range uh, up into Estes to the west and all the way out to the Kansas and Nebraska border on the east. It's a space about the size of Texas. And so if an individual has come from further east or further north, then we do have to return them to that area. So we'll take them back and release them back in that space. 
Well, I think it's amazing what you do. I've I've visited your facility and I've seen all the hard work that's that's put into it. So I can testify yes. that it's it's just amazing. So it's a lot of work, that's for sure. A lot of scrubbing of mutes for poop. <laughs> so that that is the bulk of what we do is a lot of cleaning. Yeah, the daily care can can mm-hmm. really get overwhelming, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Well, I know that this uh, program has been in existence for quite a while, but can you explain a little bit how it got started and and how long it's been around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we actually started way back in the 1970s, late 1970s. And at that time, wildlife rehabilitation wasn't really a thing. It just wasn't something that was being done. But Rachel Carson had released her book, Silent Spring, and that environmental movement was kind of getting its steam rolling. And so people were starting to pay attention to the the world around them and be cognizant of their impacts on it. And so people started finding injured animals and being caring enough to want to do something about it. But at that time, there really wasn't anywhere to go. Nobody knew anything about it. But we're incredibly lucky at our facility that we are, uh, at the time, actually, it was part of Colorado State University's vet teaching hospital. And so our very first patient, way, way before my time, was a red-tailed hawk that was brought into that vet hospital. And the vets there didn't have any experience or any knowledge about how to treat a red-tailed hawk, but they wanted to try to help. And so they took what knowledge they had regarding typical vet scene animals, more domestic animals, and applied it and did their best with what they could. And more and more people just became more and more aware and started bringing these raptors to the hospital. And so a student club among the vet students was formed and worked to try to care for and treat these various individuals. It wasn't a whole lot at the time, but it was it was enough that there was great interest from the students and the freshmen were the ones who were raising the prey for the raptors since they're carnivores, they do have to eat other animals. So they had a mouse colony that they were raising to feed to the birds. And then the senior vet students were the ones working hands on doing the medical care. And I've heard it described as a very prolific rodent breeding program that treated one or two birds a year. (laughs) But it continued to grow and more and more birds and more and more students and it got a little unwieldy. And so by 1987, the university decided to formalize the program, got together a little bit of a budget and was able to hire the founding executive director, Judy Sherpels in 1987 and formally turned that student club into a university-based organization, which Judy called the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program. And one of the very first things that she did was to open it up to the community by inviting volunteers to come in and support the program. And so in 1987, not long after she took over that director role, she held a a all volunteer call to the public, anybody who wanted to come and help out, learn to work with the birds, come to this meeting. And I think she was expecting, she said, just a handful of people. And she got like 35 or 40 people that showed up just absolutely blew her away. And uh, interestingly, we still have one of those volunteers with us today. 
still volunteering with our organization from that very first class. And so, you know, she, she continued to work with the community, work with the vet students, more and more birds coming in. And so more and more volunteers putting in longer times and kind of utilizing skills and knowledge into uh, student positions, student work positions, or perhaps partially part-time paid positions. And it just built little by little by little till about 2006 when there were four or five people on the staff and quite a number of birds coming through. And the university also wanted to and needed to expand their vet teaching hospital and the Rocky Mountain Raptor program needed more space for the work that they were doing. They had one office where you had to climb over desks to get to the one in the back. That's all the space there was for it. And so the, the program was then turned into a 501c3 nonprofit separated from the university and was able to purchase a parcel of land on the north side of Fort Collins off of Vine Drive, north of the Old Town area and relocated to that facility where we're still at today. And so we still own this parcel of land and it was built with the goal of ultimately having a kind of a, a public facility for the raptors. Think like a little zoo, but raptor centered. Um, and unfortunately, then when the economy crashed in 2008, that dream kind of just fell to the bottom and it was all about survival. But in the last couple of years, we've been able to revive that dream and are taking steps now towards making it happen with a goal of opening uh, the first phase of that facility by 2027. And so it just we've just continued to grow to the point today we have 12 staff members. We have about 150 volunteers that come in and support us with the daily care of the patients and the ambassadors, as well as our community outreach. We see and treat around 300 injured patients a year and provide 200 or more days of community education in the areas that we serve. And so it's been a slow build over the years, but we've really grown to serve a lot of people and a lot of injured raptors. And I really look forward to where we're going to be headed next. Me too. Well, I'm so excited that it was able to take off because clearly your services are so needed. So um, unfortunately, unfortunately, yes, of course. Um, what do you suggest that people do if they find an injured bird? That's a great question. And the, there's really two things that I suggest. One, bring it to the professionals, the kinds of medications that these individuals need, the types of food to support them, and the bandages, the materials needed to treat them are not things that are going to be found in our homes. And there's very specialized knowledge and specialized care that goes into treating these individuals. So getting it to professional help is the best way to improve that individual's odds of survival. And of course, the sooner the better. The first 48 hours are the most critical 
if the patient can survive 48 to 96 hours, then they have a greater chance of return to the wild. And so the sooner that treatment can start, the, the greater their chances of release might be. So the second thing is to then call us. If you're in the Northern Colorado area, we handle raptors, but only raptors. However, if it's another species, there are other organizations that can work with those. We are licensed and permitted only for raptors but call us, we, as I said, run an emergency phone. And um, if you just Google Rocky Mountain Raptor Program, or there's another great site, no matter where you're located, Animal Help Now, no matter where you are in the country, no matter what animal it might be, that's a great resource to use if you wanna to try to get that, that injured animal to help. It'll tell you, they'll ask and it'll tell you what might be a nearby researcher, but, um, please let us know and bring that animal to us as quickly as you can. And those are going to be really the best things that you can do uh, to help those injured raptors be able to return to the wild. Absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Would you mind also mentioning is the best way to find your organization through your website or social media and, and just plugging those links? Mm -hmm. So we do have a website. It's rmrp.org for Rocky Mountain Raptor Program. We also have a Facebook page and an Instagram. You can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also, there's another one I'm forgetting. Uh, YouTube, we have a YouTube channel as well. I'll admit I haven't been very active on it lately, but there's some great videos up there. Uh, wonderful, inspiring videos of releases if you want to see what those look like. And so you can certainly just Google Rocky Mountain Raptor Program, and I'll go ahead and share that number for our emergency rescue line as well. That's 970-222-0321. And so that's the number that you can call if you think a raptor is in need of help and that'll reach our rescue team direct. Okay, great. I know there's a lot of people that are super passionate about this and they and they want to help. So do, how does your volunteer program work um, and how can people get involved with that? Yeah, we rely very much on our communities to support us, not only with our volunteering, but with just sharing of who we are. And our volunteers, we have a number of different opportunities. Uh, all the information about them can be found on that website. There's a drop down menu about it. But most people, of course, are interested in working directly hands on with the raptors. And so there's really two paths there. Uh, you can learn to work with the rehabilitation team doing medical care of the injured patients. Those are typically summer interns. And I know applications right now as of January are still open, but I think they're closing up here pretty quickly because those positions begin in March and run all the way until October. That's kind of the busy season. And so those are very hands-on, working with the patients, learning to do uh, medical care, give medications, uh, make observations and support those patients back for release. And then we have a path where you can work with the educational ambassadors and doing outreach. And so you can come in and learn how to work with the birds on the glove, having those particular ambassadors stand with you and bring them out in front of an audience. 
And uh, those folks also help us care for those patients day to day and provide that community outreach, whether it be at an elementary school. Um, I just did a library program for a community library last week. I have a birthday party coming up next week. And we also do a lot of informal events like fairs and festivals throughout the summer that we bring raptors out to. We sell merchandise. We do a lot of fundraising because our organization is entirely donation funded. Even though raptors are federally protected, we get no funding from the federal government. We get no funding from the state. Everything is private donations, a few small grants here and there, but private donations. And so we spend a lot of time, of course, having to do fundraising to be able to support the work that we do as well. So that outreach is a big part of that. So there's two, really, those are the two that most people are interested in, but there's a lot of other things. There's, we do, um, let's see, we've got some administrative, someone who just comes in and does some filing for us. We have people who staff our front desk as volunteers, answer the phone, greet people when they walk in. We have some grounds maintenance. We do some events every year. We have a big benefit auction and gala that we need some volunteers to help out planning and making that happen. And so any of the opportunities that are available are going to be on the website. And so visit there to see what's available. Okay, perfect. That leads into my next question. I was actually going to ask if you have any events or projects coming up that you want to talk about. Yeah, so the big thing that we have coming up at the end of February is that auction gala. That's our single largest fundraiser for the year and brings in, we're hoping this year to finally break and make $100,000, which would be about a seventh of our annual budget. So it sounds like a lot of money, but it takes a lot to keep this place running. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big fundraiser. We hold that at the Fort Collins Hilton on February 25th. Tickets for that are on sale right now. All of the bidding is online though. So you don't necessarily have to be able to come to the event and afford a ticket to be able to bid on the items. We've got items and services and trips and beautiful Raptor photography and jewelry. And I don't even know everything that's rolled in. We're still digging through all the wonderful donations that we've gotten. But uh, there's information about that again on the website and links to where you can go to see the bidding page with greater giving and how to log in and that kind of stuff, how to buy your tickets, where to buy your tickets, that kind of thing. So that's really the next big thing that we have coming up. But we have a lot, and I'm right in the midst right now of planning the, the yearly calendar of outreach. And so we're going to have a lot of things coming up starting about Memorial Weekends. We kick off our big outreach season with the Boulder Creek Festival down in Boulder on Memorial Weekend. And we'll be out in the communities trying to focus a lot within Fort Collins because that's our base, but all around Northern Colorado, all the way until the end of October. So uh, again, website has a calendar of events. And if you follow us on our Facebook page or any of our social media, we'll also be advertising them there. So you know kind of what's coming up. We've got a lot coming, coming for the summer. I'm pretty excited. That sounds amazing. I'm so excited for you. Well, this sounds like a great time to take a little break and we can come back and talk some more if that sounds good to you. Yeah, that sounds great. Hi, everybody. We're back with Jessica Miller, the Education and Outreach Coordinator with the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program, and we're just going to keep talking about all their amazing work. So what has been the most rewarding part of your work with your organization so far? 
So for me as an educator, the thing that I love the most is when I get to see that kind of that aha moment within somebody in my audience where they suddenly make a connection about not only how amazing these wonderful birds are, but that they suddenly find themselves caring about them. And I kind of see that spark. I see that light in their eyes, even from the back of a crowded room. And I just absolutely love to see people engage and connect with the raptors when they get a chance to bring these ambassadors out in front of them. Um, sometimes when I do an elementary school program, the kids will kind of bum rush my legs afterwards and everybody wants to give me a hug because they had such a good time seeing these raptors up close. And it just makes my heart warm to think of such a positive and memorable experience for people. That's what I love the most about what I get to do. Absolutely. I think kids are just some of the best when you work in conservation and rehabilitation because it, it's just like, wow, there's a future of, of people mm-hmm. that, that really care about animals. That's my hope. Yep. So what is one of the greatest challenges you faced working for your organization? There's been a lot. There's a lot of challenges here. Mm-hmm. But as a professional, for me, the biggest challenge has actually been the overwhelm and burnout. And here, because I love what I get to do, I just, these birds, these creatures are unbelievably amazing. And the role that they play in the environment is absolutely vital. And getting to work with the ambassadors, I really get to know them as individuals and build relationships and, and really know these birds and have a connection and have a love for them. And so it often doesn't feel like work because I enjoy what I get to do. But then that means I end up doing almost too much of it, you know, where I, I forget to make the time for myself, for my family, for my own enjoyment to go out and and see and experience the world and step away from it. It's really easy to just get overwhelmed with all of the possibilities of all these things that I could potentially do. But the truth is, I am the only educator we have on staff. And there's only so much that I can do. And it's really hard to be able to say no when someone's coming to me with this wonderful opportunity because I want to provide for the community. I want to share this work. I want to share these raptors. And, but I have to be able to take care of myself too. And I know that this is a really hard part that not only me, but I think everybody on our staff and wildlife rehabilitators and educators, I hear it from them all the time. This is it's a struggle because there's always so much to do and just unfortunately never enough resources to do it. Being the only educator, you know, I there's plenty of, of opportunity for us to do way, way more, but there isn't the funding for us to be able to hire more staff to do it. And then training volunteers has its own limitations. And so being able to balance the resources with my desire to continue to do all these wonderful things. That's really been one of the hardest parts. Absolutely. I know that's in the industry in general, it's a, it's a huge mm-hmm. challenge. Do you have any, any tips for trying to kind of combat this compassion fatigue a little? 
Yeah, that compassion fatigue is absolutely very real. And the the thing is, is I've just, I've had to set boundaries and learn to say no and understand that I have my limits and I have to be able to respect those. And yes, it's a really great opportunity. And if I'm just honest with the people to say, I really wish that I could do this, I just don't have the resources to make it happen, they understand. And so I think being open and honest about the limitations that we're facing, about the fatigue, that it really helps people understand why I'm saying no. I'm not saying no because I don't think it's worth my time. I genuinely don't have the resources to do it. So you have to be able to set those boundaries and step stick to them. I also have a very supportive team. There are other team members within the education department who predominantly work more with the day-to-day care of the ambassadors, their training and welfare and volunteer training. And they're a wonderful team that any one of us comes to any one of the others and said, I just, I can't today. I need to go home. I'm burnt. I'm struggling. They're going to say, do it. What can I do for you? And so having a team that backs each other up and being there for each other is a really important part. Absolutely. I'm glad that you have that that support system to really have each other's backs is super important. It's critical. So in your position as, as an educator, I'm sure that you run into many misunderstandings um, mm. when you're talking to people out in the field. So what is one common misunderstanding um, that people have about your organization? Yeah, so the biggest misunderstanding, and I would... I would actually categorize it as a lack of understanding just because of the limited limited lack of opportunities to learn is what exactly a raptor is. Mm-hmm. And so people may know the word and they may be able to list off a handful of species, but they don't really have a good understanding of what it is that makes this creature unique. What is the definition of a raptor? And so that's one of the big things that I talk a lot about in my education is what exactly are these creatures? And so people get very confused and, you know, they'll, they'll call our rescue line with all kinds of birds because they just don't know the difference. And it's not that we won't help identify and then direct them to the right resources for non-raptor species, but having more knowledge just makes it easier for the public and for us to be more efficient in providing care for those injured individuals. And so raptors are predators, they are carnivores, and they hunt with their feet, not their beaks. And so that's really kind of the big definition, the biggest um, lack of knowledge that I encounter out there. One of the other things, we get a ton of really interesting, really curious questions from the public. And uh, one of them that I think is really rampant out there is that if you touch a baby bird, the parents will smell human on it and abandon it. Mm -hmm. And that may be true for some species of animals, but it is not true for birds. Birds in general, lack much of a sense of smell at all. And so it won't be detrimental in any way um, to touch that individual. So if 
if the rescuer asks for you to collect that individual, put it in a box and transport it, understand that you touching that bird is not going to cause it that kind of rejection harm. Um, babies sometimes fall from their nests. And so we may ask individuals if they're capable of picking the bird up and putting it back in the nest. And that's, you know, that's an okay thing to do if that nest is around and you can safely reach it. So that's kind of one of the big misunderstandings is, you know, birds really don't have much of a sense of smell. So touching babies isn't gonna cause that kind of rejection, but uh, please do ask for information from a rehabber before you touch that baby, just to make sure you don't do any other accidental harm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned that though, because I'm sure there's been so many situations in, in which people believe that and then they just think that the bird is better off left alone and it doesn't get any help. So, And in some cases it very well might be. So that's why give us a call and we'll be able to help figure it out. Absolutely. What is one of the most important lessons your organization has taught you? Patience. <laughs> Absolutely. Patience. Oh my goodness. And that comes more from the ambassador raptors than anything else. They're wild animals. And while we ask them to collaborate with us and, you know, let me bring my gloved hand over and have them step up and put equipment on and take them places to do education, they're going to do it when they're ready to do it. And you can't force it and you can't make them do things. So patience, calm, being able to just not get, not get stressed and overwhelmed when things aren't going exactly the way that I thought they would. So my patience in the last 10 years, 12 years now, goodness, that I've been part of this organization has just grown tremendously. I'm sure with working with living creatures. Yeah, it's they have their own minds. They they know what they want. And uh, yeah, you got to have that patience to deal with it. So. Okay, so my next question is a little cheesy, but I think that, you know, I like to think that we have some good advice considering that uh, we're in the animal welfare field and we want to make the world a better place. Do you have mm -hmm. any tips for doing so? Oh, I have a million things for doing so. <laughs> there are so many things that we can all do. And I think a lot of it just depends on how much passion and energy you have or choose to put into it. As, as a student at CSU, I was, I was so enthusiastic and just so optimistic about the future and about the world. And as I've gotten older, I, I, I do admit it's, gosh, it's been 20 years since I graduated now. And I do admit that some of that hope and optimism has been tempered. And sometimes I struggle and sometimes it fades, yeah. but don't give up hope. It's still there. And I think the more that we as individuals are willing to step up and do something, anything, that has a positive impact on our world. It all contributes together. You know, we can't all do everything. You can go online and you can find a million different suggestions about how to save water and energy and recycle and do this and do that. And then it can feel incredibly overwhelming. Like, how do I do all of these things? You don't. 
you do what you can. Mm -hmm. And a little bit is better than nothing at all. And if everybody continues to do a little bit and then a little bit more and share with the people that you know, not with necessarily the expectation that they should do it too, but just share that, hey, this is a thing. And I just share with family members and share with people that I know that are not part of this particular uh, corner of the world about what I do when they go, huh, and then I suddenly find them doing it too. Little bit goes a really long ways. Absolutely. I think picking, picking something to be passionate about and to kind of contribute some of your free time to mm-hmm. is a really good way. So. Yeah. Well, kind of wrapping up a bit, what are some of the biggest things you're looking forward to and with your organization? I'm very, very much looking forward to our public facility. Um, you know, that dream has been part of the organization for nearly 20 or maybe more than 20 years. I don't know for sure since I wasn't there at the beginning, but I really look forward to having this public facility open for people to come in and see what we do Um, And that's, of course, a really big dream and getting that up and off the ground is going to take a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of funding. We're going to have to run a capital campaign and I don't know all what's involved in that, but I think it's a pretty big thing. And so I'm really looking forward to being able to do that and see this organization reach the goal that it set for itself 30 years ago. And I, I really hope that I get to be part of that. Mm-hmm. On a more short-term basis, um, I'm really looking forward to, we just had a new ambassador join our team. We uh, had a bald eagle uh, transferred into our ambassador team, uh, unfortunately hit by car, uh, fractured wing, damaged shoulder, unable to fly. And I'm really looking forward to being able to bring him out and teach about bald eagles again. We had one that unfortunately passed away in 2020 and I miss that lady. And so I'm very excited to be able to start teaching about bald eagles again. Yes. Well, that's all so exciting and I'm so excited for you. And how, what is the best way for our listeners to support you? Uh, Follow us on any of our social media, stay in touch with what we are doing And the best way that the community can support us is either financial donations. As I noted, we are entirely donation funded. And if you are looking to volunteer, check out those opportunities. Okay, great. Well, is there anything you'd like our audience to know that I haven't thought to ask you? I would like to tell you about my absolute favoritist raptor. Yes. Tell me about it. I'm so excited. (laughs) My all-time top most favorite raptor is the bearded vulture. I absolutely adore vultures. They're wonderful creatures. Very, very misunderstood. Could have talked about vultures in the question about misunderstanding. That goes huge. But this is a African vulture and Asian vulture that lives entirely on bone. So these vultures, also called the Lammergeier, if you want to look them up, they're super cool. They're huge, huge birds. And they wait until uh, the carcass has all been cleaned and only the bone is left. And then they pick up the bone and they carry it to a rock outcropping and then drop it repeatedly to break it open so they can eat the bone marrow inside. They live on absolutely nothing but bone marrow. 
and they paint their feathers red with mud and dirt as a status symbol. They are just the coolest birds. If you want to go look up and learn about a fascinating bird, I recommend look up the bearded vulture. Wow, they, that sounds amazing. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm sure um, people can check out your social media as well to, mm-hmm. to learn more um, about birds. I, I know I follow it and I always love to see all the variety on there. So, Well, fantastic. Thanks for that. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing and thank you for being my guest today. I feel like I learned so much in a little short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank I, you, Anna. This is fun. Well, too, so. Yeah, thank you so much. That was such an inspiring interview. I learned so much and I hope you did too. If you were moved as much as I was and want to support this amazing organization, please visit our website at theanimallawfirm.com and check out our merch page as all profits from merchandise go towards supporting the guests on the show. Or follow the links to donate to this organization directly. If you want to support the podcast, please share us on social media and give us a five-star review. Anything helps. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, fellow underdogs.